Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. I just, before we get started into the sermon, I just want to note something, just how, how, or rather what we were choosing to sing about this morning and, and the fact that we as a church are, are generally just eager to proclaim the fact that Jesus is the rock on which we stand. Nothing, nothing of myself. I, I didn't earn this. I didn't buy this. Um, it's Christ. It's Christ alone that has done this. The, we're, we're coming into a familiar passage this morning, but I just ask you to hold, hold on to that um, resolve and that commitment to say, Christ is why I'm here. Christ is the one who's, who's saved my soul. Partially because there, there might be, there, this, is a, this, is a hard, this is a hard passage, and yet I think, think we can hold both intention of, yes, this is true, and yes, there's still a propensity in my heart to distrust even what I sang about this morning, and I keep coming back to it, I keep coming back to it, to be reminded that, that Christ is my all. So just, just bear that in mind as we come to the Pharisee and the tax collector. Just a, f- a few days ago, Jackie and I finished watching a movie together, and afterwards I was so stuck on the truth spoken by the world-famous philosopher named Spider-Man. Something he said in the movie Captain America Civil War seemed pretty profound to me. It comes at one of the, the highest points of conflict in the movie where friends have turned against each other because they have competing ideas of what it means to be a faithful superhero. In the midst of the fighting, you find the young kid, Spider-Man, facing off against the tried and true Captain America. You see, Captain America thought he was being limited in his ability to freely stop trouble as a hero, but half of his friends are trying to convince him that some, some restraint might be helpful. After being told that Spider-Man had gotten some advice from his mentor on how to stop the resilient captain, Captain America stops in the middle of the fight and asks Spider-Man, what else did he tell you? To which Spider-Man responds, that you're wrong and you think you're right. That makes you dangerous. That you're wrong and you think you're right. That makes you dangerous. And the fighting resumes. As I had this story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the back of my, my mind, I wondered, you know, Spider-Man might actually be on to something. Is there anything more dangerous than someone who is completely wrong but is dead convinced that they are right? Are they not a danger to themselves and to others? Just think about that for a second. Someone who is utterly wrong but is so sure that they're right. It might be an overused example, but it's something that we, we are all aware of. I couldn't help but think of Hitler's Nazi regime. Hitler was so convinced that what he was doing was right, convinced to the point where it destroyed himself and pressed him further into this idolatrous idea of, of a utopia that he could bring, and it caused the harm and the death of so many others. When someone is sure about something that's wrong and remains convinced they are a threat to themselves and can live in such a way that unbeknownst to them can lead to their own destruction. What if such a person snapped out of it and saw clearly that they weren't so right after all? What if, take, that, take that example. What if that happened? 
We're looking at this parable today because the only thing standing between you and God's mercy is your self-righteousness. The only barrier to us receiving mercy from God is our unwillingness to let go of being right in our own eyes. Self-righteousness is exactly what it sounds like, relying upon ourselves to somehow gain God's approval. We have this craving to always be at or get to a point where no fault can be found in us, which is a sham anyway. We also talk ourselves into thinking that we stand above others as God's cream of the crop. But this parable is here to tell us that that attitude does not land us on the side of God's mercy. Last week, we talked about how God is far more kind and generous than the unrighteous judge to those who trust him. And here, trusting him for mercy matters because God is not that unrighteous judge. He is merciful to those who trust him. Like I said, many of you know this parable. You're coming to something familiar this morning. Here's the story. Two guys go up to pray. One's full of himself. The other beats his chest in repentance. And Jesus says, be like the second guy. Well, kind of. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard, read with my own eyes, and learned from this parable without really reading verse 9, the very first verse in this section. Verse 9 is why Jesus is about to tell this parable in the first place. It's staring back at us as the stage setter for the whole thing. It reads like this, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. We don't know whether Jesus is with his disciples still or if he's around some Pharisees too, kind of mixed in there. But what we do know is that there are some around him who think they've got something, something that gives them a spiritual leg up above others. The only way we could count ourselves out of this category of people is to say we never have and never will again trust in ourselves and our rightness to the point where we despise and look down on others. And to be frank, there's not a person here who doesn't know what that's like or won't be tempted again to see themselves in that light. Beyond that, there might be a select few of you who have lived your entire life with a perpetual sense of rightness when compared to others. When I look at the default setting of my life, I find myself most often trusting in my track record, or at least my track record since coming to Christ, and looking down on people less put together, or too put together, too zealous, too fanatical, or less committed to the church, or you name it. We will find ways to place ourselves above others. And this is is just in us. This desire to prove ourselves to God in this twisted way by scorning others so we somehow look different to him but he's he's not fooled in the process we want to look scrubbed up and presentable and this is who jesus is talking to he's talking to people like you and me i mentioned before that the only thing standing between you and god's mercy is your self-righteousness Well, we'll ask three questions from this parable, which I pray will help 
loosen our grip on the wrong idea that we bring something to the table that forces God's hand of mercy. And hopefully it will tighten our grip on the truth that the prize of his mercy is worth the price of attempting or accepting our unworthiness. The prize of his mercy is worth the price of accepting our unworthiness. So question number one, what does it mean to trust in yourself? Part of the reason for asking that question was I was saying to myself, I, I say that a lot. We say that a lot. Don't, don't trust in yourself. Well, what, is, what does it mean? What does it look like to actually do that? Exhibit A, verse 10. Two men up, went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. We've talked a fair bit in this Luke series about who the Pharisees are and who the tax collectors are. Pharisees were living examples of faithfulness to Moses' law. We, we are forced to look at them in a certain light. We know the Pharisees' heart from this parable, but as far as appearances go, these guys really have kept the law to a T and even gone beyond the law in some ways. In this case of the Pharisee, he's going up to the temple as a well-respected religious man. He's supposed to be the epitome of a faithful Jew who loves God with all his heart. His entire life is wrapped up into obeying the law of God. On the other hand, there's a tax collector, totally despised as a man, respected by no one. These men couldn't be more different. But to those who trust in themselves, Jesus has something to show us first through this Pharisee. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee isn't standing by himself for this quiet, intimate moment with God. He's standing by himself to keep himself pure and clean from the less thans who are also with him at the temple. He has an idea of his worthiness and his purity that somehow sets him apart from others. He opens his mouth for this brief thanks to God and then moves on to what is a vain thanks at that. One commentator says that he, he glances at God and then contemplates himself. What's the main point of his prayer? The main point of his prayer is that he thanks God that he is not like people who are overt lawbreakers. In other words, the real sinners. He's not like extortioners who rob people of their money. He's not like the guy driving the beat-up car or the dysfunctional family or the flaming liberal or the Twitter tyrant or the lazy coworker or the pack-a-day smoker. You name it, and you can bet he sure isn't like any of them. In fact, he's thankful to God that he's not like them. Now, friends, the first step into thinking that we're right when we're wrong is that when we as professing Christians believe that we are superior to the real sinners. You are a danger to yourself in those moments when you place yourselves on this different worthiness plane. And you're a danger to others as you look down your nose at them with despising contempt. I wondered what, what does it mean that 
Jesus is saying this parable to people who saw themselves as righteous and treated others with contempt. There's a very tight relationship there. When we are filled with a sense of self-importance, the automatic response to other people is to treat them with contempt, to despise them, to devalue them. that's, That's the whole reason why we had a Respect the Image seminar a few weekends ago is because we are bent towards disrespecting God's image in others. A side note here, this, this passage is not hardly at all about evangelism, but this church exists to bring glory to God by maturing and multiplying disciples of Jesus who enjoy, declare, and display the good news for the joy of all peoples. With King Jesus leading the way, I, I wholeheartedly believe that, that that can and will continue to happen. He will continue to use this church to mature the disciples that are here, the, those that come to be among us, and multiply disciples. So let's, let's be about doing that. But let's also be mindful that we can cut out the legs of maturing and multiplying disciples by holding fast to our righteousness. We shouldn't expect anyone to hear the gospel from us if we are holding them as someone less worthy of God's salvation or who just wouldn't fit in my paradigm of what this kind of Christian community looks like. That's exactly what Jonah did. The Ninevites were awful people, and Jonah thought that since they weren't cleaned up first, that they weren't worthy of good news. If we're expecting people to be cleaned up, financially sound, theologically literate at that first, we shouldn't expect to see God reaching the greater Dayton area or the nations through us at all. Now, a caveat to the side note, God is greater than our hearts. He is able to accomplish this mission that we've just, we, we lay out as an impossible task that we stand in our own way for, but we can be confident that he will accomplish that task. But we must be mindful that, that looking down on others is an enemy to that task. Before God, the Pharisee thinks that he is somehow different than a wicked tax collector. Why does he think that? The text explains a little bit. First, He's comparing himself with those around him. And then as he compares himself, he thinks he's doing a pretty good job. I fast twice a week, he says. Under the law, there was one, count them, one required fast a year, which was on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisee shoots for twice a week. That's pretty good. Not only that, he was only really required to tithe from his major crops, But instead, he ties everything, even the stuff that he just grows in his garden. He has gone above and beyond, and this fuels his sense of self-righteousness. I remember remember pretty pretty vividly when I was uh, sitting around a table with Phil Martin, Robbie, and BJ, as we talked about this whole kind of like self-justifying thing. It dawned on me for the first time that I don't even have to be keeping God's law to feel like I'm right. All I have to do is keep my standards and my laws 
and I will find plenty of reason to feel good about my track record and then be totally free to look down on how people aren't measuring up to that standard, this arbitrary standard that I've set up for myself that I feel like I'm keeping really well and they're just flopping. Do you ever do, you ever do that? Just, I never realized how much, how much that plays a part. We're on the hunt to be right, to stay right, to avoid admitting that we were ever wrong in the first place, ignoring the reality that once upon a time, our course was set straight for hell. If anyone needs mercy, it's actually this Pharisee. It's us. And the only thing standing in the way of receiving mercy is our, our fierce kind of commitment to our own self-righteousness. To trust in yourself is to look around at others and construct within your heart a sense of, I am more right than them, therefore I must be right before God. Proverbs 30 verse 12 says this, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Now here's, here's how I, I, I know what it's like to listen to a sermon. I, I know how this kind of game goes. It goes like this, oh God, I thank you that I am not like this Pharisee, trusting in himself and despising others. I thank you that I'm, I'm nowhere near that. I thank you that you've given me this, this parable so that I know way beforehand to go ahead and be like the tax collector. But you, you see how that works? The solution isn't to distance ourselves even from the sinful hypocrite. The solution is to embrace the fact that all, you and me, have fallen short of the glory of God and thus open up what was closed off, which is God's mercy. In what ways might you be clean in your own eyes? Does your knowledge of the truth of God's word create disdain for uninformed or less mature Christians? Or more specifically, does your reformed perspective cause you to look at other Christian denominations with disdain? Paul says knowledge that puffs up is not true knowledge because it misses love. Do you feel like your lifestyle or the way you voted, the way you parent, or discipline your kids, or the way you pray, or the way you serve this church, or, 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 is the only possible and biblical way to do so, and everyone else needs to get it together. Paul says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest you fall. In other words, let anyone who thinks they are spiritually immune to failure or being wrong take heed lest they be wrong in a far worse way. Test yourself here. Next time you find yourself looking down on others as if they're the scum of the earth, what's your basis? Well, I'm and they're... Is it a, is it a comparison that's based on truth, about sin, about God's mercy, or is it based on an inflated sense that you've gotten yourself to where you are? Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, 28 through 31 show us that our only appeal to any sort of boasting lies in God and not us. It reads this way, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, that's what we were doing this morning as we sang, on Christ the solid rock I stand, yet not I, but through Christ in me. We didn't have wisdom. We didn't have righteousness or sanctification and redemption prior to God opening our eyes to the glory of Jesus. Because of the Father, we are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And now Jesus has become to you what you never had before. In the case of the Pharisee and the tax collector, namely, he's become righteousness to you. I love that line, dressed in his righteousness alone boldly to stand before the throne. That's the only way. That's the only way that God looks upon you, not with with approval and says, yes, you are mine. Like we talked about this morning as we were praying before the service, God, God claims us, you are mine. And the only way is if we come clothed in Christ's righteousness, not our tattered rags of our own righteousness. The righteousness that the Pharisee lacks is found in Jesus but he's trying to preserve his own frail and broken righteousness. So, second question. We ask, what does it mean to trust in ourselves? What does it mean to truly trust in God's mercy? It's at this point in the parable where Jesus lifts up the tax collector as the alternative to a self-righteous, self-proclaiming, and others-condemning Pharisee. Verse 13 and 14. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Some of you will remember Steve's sermon from Luke 5, where Jesus unashamedly called Levi, the tax collector, to follow him. Listen to that again, if you can. It is a a picture of Jesus choosing us, choosing the the least expected or, or most despised, He took a man who was an extortioner and just an overall thief, and he called him to be his disciple. Tax collectors were rich, but they were hated, especially by those who saw themselves as God's faithful people. The Pharisee is so appalled by the tax collector, but the tax collector is appalled at the tax collector as well. We're not meant to simply kind of chew up the tax collector's prayer and spit it out in our own way just because we know, okay, this is the right way to go. Jesus is laying that out clearly. Take a look at his heart first, which shows in his prayer. First of all, he has a deep sense of his unworthiness. He is not fooled about the state of his heart. He's standing far off, perhaps feeling like he shouldn't get too close to the holiness of God in the temple. And when he, he, he stands there, he looks up. I don't think it's an accident that the Pharisee is, he makes mention of all these other people. But here's the tax collector standing far off, and he's looking up, lifting his eyes to heaven. The only comparison he's making is that between his wrongness and God's holiness. And when he sees the contrast, he's led to beat his chest because something has become clear to him. 
He needs mercy. Like Isaiah in God's temple, woe is me. I need mercy. So he cries out for it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's no mention of his own goodness. No attempts to try to find some worse tax collector there in the temple to to measure himself by. All he knows is that he needs to be spared from holy wrath, and God is the one who can spare him. Where the Pharisee can't stand to think of himself as similar to the unjust, the adulterers, who are the real sinners, the tax collector in many ways counts himself among them because he's not tricking himself. He's not deceived and blinded by this sense that he's worthy of mercy or not in need of it at all. To trust in God's mercy then, this is a bit of the answer to that question, what does it mean to really trust in his mercy? To trust in God's mercy includes something so simple as looking at a person who you'd be tempted to despise, who has made a wreck of their life or who lives by their own self-destructive rules and say to yourself, there is nothing I've done to be different from that person. It's only a matter of God's abundant grace that I am not in their position right now. The tax collector knows what he's got on his own merits and it's a whole lot of nothing. James Edwards, a commentator, writes this, without merits to stand on, the tax collector must stand humbly before God. Without merits to speak for him, he must plead to God. Without merits to be rewarded, his only option is to plead for God's mercy. The Pharisee stands before God in self-congratulations. The tax collector stands before God in prayer. Paul David Tripp, in his Lent devotional, says prayer is laying down your self-righteousness. It is an act of faith. If, if we are truly praying, if we're not coming before God praying, but actually patting ourselves on the back, it is laying down your self-righteousness. So let that inform, okay, if, if the only thing preventing me from God's mercy is my self-righteousness, does that show in prayer? Do, do I come to him often laying that down and saying, I trust you. You are my only hope. You are the only one who can spare me. How does God respond to the Pharisee or the tax collector's prayer? He responds exactly how David assures us he will respond. David's Psalm 51 confession of sin with Bathsheba starts with these words. Have mercy on me, O God. You see the pattern? And later, David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not, what? Despise. You will not treat with contempt. You will not hold a broken heart that feels a desperate need for your mercy in contempt. You will not scorn a heart that feels the unliftable weight of guilt from sin. You will not despise or sneer at me when I am pleading for your mercy. A broken heart is one that has laid down its tools and stopped constructing its idol of self-righteousness, knowing that that effort is wasted when God's mercy is right here to be received without measure. Spider-Man mentioned earlier, you're wrong and you think you're right. That makes you dangerous. If that's true, which... I would argue this passage seems to agree with that. 
then what does it mean when you're wrong and you know you're wrong? Jesus closes the actual parable portion with this. I tell you, listen up. This is what I'm telling you. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This man left that time of praying in the temple as a justified man. In other words, God's wrath was taken off of him and his mercy was put on him and God wholeheartedly approved of him. He was right with God and God showed this wretched wretched extortioner mercy while the Pharisee walked away with nothing but the same damning self-righteousness that he walked in with. Friends, when you're wrong and you know you're wrong and you come before God asking for his mercy, that makes you not dangerous but righteous. I mentioned earlier that there are some here who trust in Christ who are constantly tempted to trust in our goodness and our acceptability. That that is a theme of our lives. And there are others who have lived on their own merits for their whole life. The solution is the same. So, the only thing standing in the way of you receiving God's mercy is that commitment that you may still have pretty firm in this moment to be right in your own eyes. Friends, breaking down the the dam of self-constructed so-called righteousness releases a torrent of God's mercy, which does what? It cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Here's the beauty of it. If your track record is stained with deception, you don't simply have to make up for all the lies and retrace every step to get to a place where you have a net gain of good in the end. God is merciful to those who see their need of him. If your life has been marked by lots of lost battles with lust or hatred towards others or constant fights and arguments, you don't have to fast twice a week in order to pay it back. God has mercy on sinners who trust him. He loves those who trust him. He doesn't have mercy on those who trust themselves, thinking that they can do what only he can do in removing our guilt. There's a song that I heard about two years ago that has, has stuck as kind of an embodiment of this passage. I found it helpful. I've probably listened to it two dozen times this week just as this passage has kind of been in front of me. I'll include it in the sermon follow-up, but here's, here's how it goes in the form of a prayer. I promise you I will not waste your time thinking of ways to clear my name. I promise you I will not waste your time thinking of ways just to clear my name. Oh, Adonai, Lord, have mercy on me. If you're still listening to me, there's only one thing that I need now. Oh, Adonai, have mercy on me. Why? Because I've got nothing to bring. Oh, I've got nothing to bring. Oh, Adonai, have mercy on me. And that's, that's our prayer this morning. I will not persist in defending myself before you. You know my heart. You know every part of me. It's so futile. My time in your presence is better spent pleading for your mercy. And something I've learned only from this passage here is that though the tax collector is crying out in in desperation, he's casting himself on the Lord, 
Each time we come to God saying, have mercy on me because I am a sinner, the more I find that that desperation can be mixed with great confidence that mercy is what we ask for and mercy is exactly what we'll get. In fact, I think that's the essence of saving faith. Mercy is what you offer. Mercy is what I need. Mercy is what I'm going to ask for. And mercy is what I will get. So the last question, what's the motivation for laying down our righteousness and trusting in God's mercy? Jesus ends this parable with a phrase that Scripture repeats again and again. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus has already said this once in Luke when he was talking about taking the higher seat in the wedding feast, but it's so much a part of the fabric of how God deals with us that we find it all throughout Scripture. I want to draw a particular attention to James 4, verses 6 and 10, because at first glance here, Jesus in Luke isn't super clear on what being exalted and being humbled means. In James 4, 6, he quotes from Proverbs, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God, and he will exalt you. This is a picture of repentance. Here's the gist of James 4. Repent and God will exalt you to heaven. Exalt yourself and he will humble you to hell. The cost for trusting in yourself is very high. Just as the reward is very high for trusting in Jesus who is our righteousness. Defending yourself before a holy God who knows you through and through is futile and condemning. Listen to Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, of him to whom we must give account. Why continue to think you could hide and then also, as a result, cut yourself off from sweet mercy? Appealing to mercy results in being shown mercy. He loves those who trust him. He doesn't have mercy on those who trust themselves. Why? Because if we don't trust what Jesus did on the cross for us, we're saying to the God of all grace that we can do this on our own. Friends, we can't. So why act as if we can? Humble yourself and you will be exalted. Remember, the tax collector is the one who went down to his house justified rather than the other. The, the tax collector won out. He tasted God's mercy. The humble are exalted and will be exalted. Don't exalt yourself to a place where you see yourself, one, as different from other sinners. That's a bad sign and a sign that you're dangerous to your own eternity. And number two, where you see yourself as no longer in need of what Jesus died to give you, freedom from the guilt of your rebellion against God himself. Steve read these words last week from Revelation 3, but after I was just stuck on them since last Sunday, I just felt like, man, I, ha I hadn't 
looked at the letters to the churches in Revelation in a long time, or, or definitely not carefully. I couldn't believe how applicable Revelation 3 is for us. And I have this, like, this, I don't know, it's not a motto, it's not anything like this, but it's just kind of a, a passing thought in my head that if, if you hear it twice, the Lord must have something for us. So I just felt, felt like he was compelling me to share this again and walk through it again with you. And, and perhaps there's grace in here, grace and a warning for us. So Revelation 3, the risen King Jesus says these words to the church in Laodicea. I know your works. Just puts, it, just puts the Pharisee and the tax collector in perspective. They're praying to God, and here is God, King Jesus, saying, I know your works already. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me, King Jesus, gold refined by fire, so that you, you say I'm rich, but I, wa- I want you to see that you're poor, blind, naked, totally in need. And I want you to buy gold from me so that you may be truly rich and so that you might have white garments, that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, this is his address to us, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, Sovereign Grace Church Dayton, be zealous, repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is calling us to see ourselves as we are. You have practiced and practiced and convinced yourself that what you have done, how you've succeeded, how you've done well for yourself spiritually is your doing. But Jesus says, you're naked. You're poor, blind, pitiable, and so obviously in need of Jesus' mercy. So he calls us to come to him, not, not to be scolded, but to be clothed to cover up our shame and to clear the fog off our eyes to see a salvation as absolutely necessary for us lest we die. He loves you and he reproves us and disciplines us and calls us right here to repent. Repent of your self-righteousness and constant denial of being a sinner because why? He's standing at the door on the other side of that door of repentance ready to come in and fellowship with you freely. Friends, this is both a call to those who have not known Jesus and to those who already do. Our continual commitment to our righteousness will lead us to shutting Jesus out and ignoring his lavish mercy towards us. He knocks often. Let him in often. The call is to no longer trust in yourself and to trust his mercy always. Why? Well, I'll give two reasons. The first is right in this verse. Get this. Verse 21. The one who conquers, which is kind of shorthand for the one who has faith to lay down his righteousness, to carry our sin-laden life before a merciful God, and to remain ever in his debt and not the other way around. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
me, Jesus, the king, will not skimp on this reward. If you are humbled now to live a have mercy on me, God, sort of life, which is the life of faith, get this, he will plop you down on his throne, just like the father did with him, exalted beyond a place that we deserve. We will go through this life beating our chest saying, have mercy, have mercy, only to rise from the dead and appear with Christ on his throne. Undoubtedly, we'll be singing the praises of that wonderful mercy towards sinners that we ourselves have asked for. I think in those moments, we may wonder why we didn't give up trusting in ourselves sooner, but no matter, because we'll be grateful beyond measure that Christ gave us parables like the Pharisee and the tax collector to show us that we are ever in need of his mercy, that he is ever ready to forgive. The second motivation besides this future reward is a bona fide present promise. And I hope this promise will make the Lord's Supper that much more meaningful to us as we get ready to take that together. Psalm 40, verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. This is who God is. As for you, O Lord, when I ask for mercy, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Do you want proof of that? Come and look at the cross of Jesus Christ as we take the Lord's Supper. We wouldn't be singing about this and taking the bread and the cup if God rationed out his mercy. Oh no, he sent a flood of forgiving mercy when Jesus died on the cross. Whoever would lay down their righteousness and believe in him, they will have true righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus given to tax collectors like you and me.